What a beautiful way for us to begin our retreat, to spend a few moments in adoration of the Blessed Sacrament and to spend the time of these conferences in the presence of our Eucharistic Lord present in the tabernacle because he is the master of this retreat. He is the one who will be directing us. He is the one who will be guiding us. There are a lot of human instruments that the Lord will use this weekend. The sisters, all the various cooperators who are making this retreat possible by taking care of the little things, food, drink, comfort, scheduling, all those things that are taken out of our hands by their generosity so that we can have time to pray. So we want to begin by thanking God for the grace of being able to be on this retreat. And we want to thank God for all those who have been instruments of this retreat for us, especially the sisters and their cooperators, our families and our friends who have been praying for us and helping us to set aside the time to be here in the presence of the Lord. In Psalm 87 we read, and you all find their home. Of course, this is directed to the God of the Old Testament, who is the God of the New Testament, who's the God whom we adore and worship, who was not known to the Jews as Father, Son, and Spirit, but was known to them nonetheless, according to the revelation that he had given them. And there's something beautifully domestic about this verse of the Psalms. And you all find their home. You know, the word home represents so much in our imagination. Home is more than just a physical building. Home is more than just a kind of place or dot on the map. You know, it's the place where we feel comfortable, where we feel safe, where we have generated a place that has been the cause of the generation of many memories. We hope happy. And it's possible to have more than one home. And as we age and move and develop and grow and mature, we kind of transfer our domestic allegiance from one place to another. But there's still something about the place of origin where we grew up, especially if we had happy family lives, or at the very least, you know, normal family lives. There's something great about seeing the home where we first learned to walk, where we learned to speak, where we learned uh, to fight, where we learned to make up. And probably somewhere in their home, that home there is somewhere, probably in a door frame, uh, a series of lines marking how each child in that family grew and grew. In my family, it was in the garage. It was part of the framing of the garage door. We had all of our ages there. Um, and all of our heights as we grew up, you know, because kids like to see themselves get bigger. Hmm. Well, I think on this retreat, the Lord is inviting us to consider that we're never at home unless we're with him. We're never at home unless he is the center of, of our existence. 
And if he is the center of our, our existence, we can be at home anywhere, physically speaking. But we won't be home anywhere unless we're united with him. You know, we've been given the theme this year in the retreats here at Sacred Heart Retreat House, the Holy Family of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. It's a wide open kind of panorama of topics that can attract our prayer. And I hope that we'll see these conferences. Many of you are veterans of these retreats. These conferences are not just talks. They're not just lectures. Um, they're simply a help to us to pray. And the dialogue that we should be having or striving to have during these conferences, and there are seven of them, including the two homilies of the masses that we'll celebrate tomorrow and Sunday, the conversation we want to have is with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So it's not just a question of listening to what the retreat master may say. We may write down one or two things that, that occur to us that stick in our mind or imagination. But to try to be listening to the Holy Spirit, where is he directing me in this, in this conference? And, you know, it may be the case if we're really trying to elevate our mind and heart to God in these moments that some word will strike us, maybe a word of one of the hymns we just sang at benediction, maybe a word of a prayer, maybe a word that, uh, that kind of enters into our imagination as a result of what we're hearing in the church, and that could lead us down a whole kind of avenue of prayer that we never imagined. It may not even be on the topic that's being addressed. That doesn't matter. Let's let the Holy Spirit direct us wherever he wants to. And so the, um, the conferences are really meant to help us to pray. And so I hope we can have that interior dialogue with God and focus our attention upon the tabernacle um, and try to, to maybe glean from some of the words that we hear some helpful avenues that will lead us to, into a dialogue with God. But maybe at the heart of that dialogue this weekend is our ongoing kind of prayer about the family as a model and an instrument of God's presence in our life. And you know, that can be a little bit of a touchy way of approaching our prayer because none of us have a perfect family. None of us grew up in a perfect family. None of us have a perfect family now. And even if our family is an extended religious family, a religious community, like the sisters here, a parish, which can, you know, is a family of families, if you will, as St. John Paul called it. There's not a perfect one anywhere. So it's kind of daring to take the Holy Family as a topic or a theme for a retreat, because who of us are going to measure up to the Holy Family? Okay, nobody raised their hands, so I guess nobody. I didn't raise my hands either. I should put them in my pockets. No, we're not, we won't measure up to that, but that's not the point. The point is not to see, okay, um, where, where am I going wrong in my family life? I think the point for us is to ask, well, what are the, what are the virtues that we can learn from the Holy Family? What can we learn from them um, that will help us to grow in discipleship that will help us to grow closer to God in our, in our prayer and in our, 
active works of charity. But if we backtrack just a little bit, we have to begin, really, when we think about the Holy Family, backtrack to the uh, fundamental kind of observation, and that is the family is willed by God. It's not just a kind of convenience that has evolved with human social progress or maturity, but the family is something willed by God. It is part of God's original plan for creation that Adam and Eve, which are the names the scriptures give to our first parents, are not just a man and a woman and not just a husband and a wife, but they're a family. And we know they didn't have a perfect family either. Far from it. Right. And so maybe we, instead of talking about the holy family, we should talk about the unholy family, the first family of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. Uh, this is Lent after all, so maybe that would be a good... But we want to start, we want to take the high road. You know, we want to see the, the, the positive road rather than the negative road. But the, uh, their failures you know, and their sinfulness, which we share, so we don't want to be too tough on them because we share that same condition, shouldn't blind us to the fact that the family is something willed by God. It's not just the product of a natural process. And of all the ways that God could have launched the project of redemption, he chose to begin with a human family. That was his starting point, Mary and Joseph. When you think about it, the father could have sent his divine son on a kind of independent mission, independent of any other human person. He could have created a body out of nothing or out of the dust of the earth or about rocks from the landscape. He could have created a body just by a simple act of his will. It was not absolutely necessary in order to take on our human nature that the divine son of God was conceived in the womb of a woman. It wasn't absolutely necessary. God could have willed something else. And even after Jesus was born, um, he could have provided that he grow up in a, some kind of monastic or aromatic community like the Essenes. Some of us have heard about the Essenes. It was a religious movement at the time of Christ. John the Baptist was probably associated with them. The Lord probably had some association or contact with them. Some of the apostles may have as well. Um, it was the Essenes, you know, who produced what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are kind of an old archive of scripture uh, that were preserved by these Essene communities in the desert. It could have been that Jesus could have, you know, Mary and Joseph could have said, all right, well, okay, I'm the mother of God. We've got to make sure that he gets the right kind of environment in which to grow up so he'll be prepared for his mission. So we'll drop him off at the monastery, the Essene monastery out in the desert north of the, or just, uh, just nearby the Dead Sea. And it's, you know, there's some scripture scholars who think that John the Baptist, um, after the death of his parents, you know, who were older when he was born, uh, grew up in an Essene community or an Essene kind of a Essene monastery kind of. Uh, it, 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 in fact, some would think it's highly likely. So why wouldn't Jesus have been kind of given over to one of these communities to raise him up, you know, and to the knowledge of the scripture, very, so through his acquired human knowledge, which was a part of the incarnation, that he would have 
you know, this community of, uh, of, of men who were living the, the, the Jewish commandments very intensely and very wholeheartedly and very intentionally, as people say today. But that's not what happened. Mary and Joseph didn't turn them over to these holy men in this holy community. You know, and God could have provided some other means. The Father could have decided something else. Uh, some other method by which his eternal son would enter the world and enter human history. But he didn't. The Father didn't choose any other way. What he chose was that Christ should be incarnate and be born in a human family and grow up in a human family and spend the vast majority, 90% of his time upon this earth and his human body in a human family. Only about 10% of his life was spent in the public sphere. The other 90% was spent with Mary and Joseph in little old Nazareth, going down to Jerusalem at least once a year for the major feast days, for Passover, maybe some other feast days, but living there. And probably not going very far from uh, Nazareth during his youth and his young adulthood. So the family is willed by God. And the family is used as an instrument through which the great mystery of the salvation of the world is launched and undertaken. Now, that's all very interesting. How do we, how do we translate that into something useful, some useful observations for our own life? Because again, you know, this is an extraordinary family. If we think of the family as the place where we learn to love and we learn to forgive, did anyone in the Holy Family ever need to ask for forgiveness? Jesus never had to ask for forgiveness. Mary was sinless. She never had to ask for forgiveness. Theoretically, it's possible Joseph had to ask for forgiveness, but probably not very often, because I imagine he was extraordinarily holy. And so he was the only sinner in that house. And he wasn't much of one. You know, St. Joseph is the worst, most unreliable member of your family. That sets a pretty high standard for everybody else, right? And when you look at it, humanly speaking, yeah, that's what Joseph was. Joseph was the sinner in the family. He was the black sheep. But... What a black sheep. I mean, it's like one little black hair probably on the whole sheep. That's St. Joseph. You know, we're all black all over black sheep. My whole outfit is black. Um, you know, so what use is it really to kind of reflect on the Holy Family? We can never measure up. We can never hope to approach the level of virtue or holiness possessed by Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. I mean, even in heaven, it's not possible because we don't have the capacity. Um, and when we think about it, the weakest link in that chain, St. Joseph, remains far above us in virtue and sanctity and excellence. Many, many of the saints of the church consider St. Joseph after the Blessed Mother to be the greatest saint. But yet here we are spending a weekend thinking about praying about the Holy Family. So our objective really is not to become identical with these three. Our objective is not to say, okay, I need to get all revved up here spiritually so I can go home and make my family just like the Holy Family. 
and I'm, my husband's going to be St. Joseph, and you laugh without even pausing when you think, you know, I'm going to be the Blessed Mother, and all the kids are going to be Jesus. I don't think that's going to work. I don't think that's a good strategy. And that's all we're thinking about this weekend. I think the opportunity this weekend will be lost a little bit. So our objective is not to become identical with these three, but I think our objective is to learn from them, to learn from their virtues, so that we can contribute to the good of our families. Not that we can go home and correct everybody else's problems. You know. If you haven't trained your husband to pick up his socks from off the floor by now, it's not going to happen. you just got to surrender that. Right? Um, and our objective is not to learn from the virtues of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph so that we can cultivate virtues in other people. Saying, oh, honey, I've got, I was on this retreat. I have this whole list of virtues I want you to grow in now. <laughs> or I'd have a family meeting with all the kids and the grandkids. You know, I had this great retreat, and the food was really good. And I just was inspired to make a list of virtues that all of you need to grow in. And I made it very specific. And when the grandkids say, well, what are, you, what are your virtues, Grandma? My virtue is to point out everybody else's lack of virtue. <laughs> That's not our objective. Our objective is to look in ourselves and say, what is the good that I can contribute? What is the good that I can contribute for my family, for others, whether it's my blood family, the extended family of friends and neighbors, fellow parishioners, my neighbors in general, those are all kind of different levels of intensity of a kind of family. Right. Although nothing really can take the place of our, of our true biological family or its importance, even if it's imperfect. But we want to begin to realize a bit more completely God's design for our homes. It's not going to happen overnight, especially if there are long festering problems. Again, that may, that, that may have emerged from the failures of others and not ourselves, although we may have had a part of them too. So the, pro, the, the objective here is not really to unravel all the knots in our family life, but to ask, what can I do from this point forward to contribute to the good of my family, to the flourishing of my family, the growth and holiness of my family? I mean, I think about the situation in the church today in this country in many respects, is pretty bleak. And we see huge acts of spiritual treason on the part of many clerics. And it can be disheartening. And most of us, in fact, I think probably all of us here, are relatively, if not absolutely, powerless to do anything about it. So how do we live through this kind of swamp of... Uh, of evil, really. Well, what St. Paul tells us in, in Romans chapter 12, if there's a verse that's meant for the day and age in which we live, it's Romans chapter 12, verse 21. One, two, two, one. Easy to remember. Let this be burned into your awareness and your consciousness. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by an abundance of good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by an abundance of good. So if we look around and we see in our society or in 
our church an abundance of evil, we may have to point it out, but we, we will overcome it. Evil will be overcome by an abundance of good in my life and your life. Not through necessarily devising policies or putting in new programs. Oh, those things may be necessary. Those things may be good. But that's not what we're going to be doing. That's not what we're called to do. And we can translate that same spirit to our family life, which is kind of our first missionary field. If we, if we have a missionary spirit, and we should have to a certain extent, right? Well, our mission field begins with our family. And if there is a lack of equilibrium there in some way, if there's even some evil there, we, should, we do not let it overcome us, but we overcome it by an abundance of good. So the question for us is how can I be kind of spiritually charged and energized on this weekend, which is just kind of a starting point, a beginning. You know, it, it won't, we won't work out all of these possibilities just in 36 hours, but we can make a good start. How can I be spiritually energized to contribute some good where I happen to be? Not to force good on others and not to force others to be good and not to give them that long list of virtues that they need to grow in in order for us to have a more content life. Although, you know, if that works for you, I think it'd be great if you could pull it off. But what can I contribute to the good? Without counting the cost, without keeping score, without saying, okay, I'm only going to go so far because I know the other's only going to go so far, so I'm not going to put myself out. Maybe we should be willing to put ourselves out. Because St. Paul says, overcome evil by an abundance of good, not by a little bit of good, not by one or two little acts of good, but by an abundance of good, an overflowing quantity of good, a good that can't be contained. It's overabundant, something that flows out of our heart and of our mind uh, without any kind of limit, or seemingly any kind of limit. Wouldn't it be great if the Lord would give us that desire that we could, that our life could be filled with an abundance of good, not for our own sake even, but for the sake of others. And maybe to a certain extent it is already, we just don't recognize it. It's probably good that we don't recognize it completely because then, you know, that would be a, a bit of an assault on, on humility and may, might fester or foster a festering pride but nevertheless, that, that is a good desire to have. We want to learn from the virtues of the Holy Family so that we can contribute to the good of our families by an abundance of good that overflows from the heart. And so that we can begin to realize a little more completely uh, God's design for our homes, wounded and imperfect as they may be. If we turn to the Catechism, which is always a good place to begin any kind of theological reflection. Um, there's a beautiful summary of the blessings of the Christian family. This is in Catechism number 2205, if you keep track of these things, paragraph 2205, so it's near the back. It says, the Christian family is a communion of persons, a sign and image of the communion of the Father and the Son in the Holy Spirit. So this really takes us back to the beginning of creation. 
where the family was meant to be a visible sign on earth of the family of God in heaven, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that it was God's intention that 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 family life be reflected by Adam and Eve and their offspring, but it was lost. And it was only partially reflected. To then only be fully or as fully reflected as possible in the Holy Family, a trinity on earth. Although only one member of that trinity, of course, is God. The others are human beings and human persons. And so we see in the Holy Family a reflection of the life of God, the ideal to which one is called. And to say it is an ideal means two things. It means, first of all, it's, it's somewhat outside of our human experience. It is something at the end point of a long kind of trajectory. But it also means that something of that perfection can be reflected back into our lives. It, because it's an ideal doesn't mean it's unattainable or that it's not worth striving for. Even if what we receive is a, is a reflection, even a dull reflection or a partial reflection, that's still something. There's still a grace there, and we want to be mindful of it. So the Christian family is a communion of persons, a unity that's brought about through this indwelling of the Father, Son, and Spirit in each of the baptized who form members of the family. And the Catechism goes on to say, as we see the Father's work of creation reflected in the begetting of children and in their upraising and their education. We see the life of Christ in the way in which families learn to partake in prayer and sacrifice. And how, again, how they learn to love, how they learn to forgive. And then we see the work of the Holy Spirit insofar as people in the family learn to live charity with one another, be patient with one another. You know, it's no wonder that in our culture with the family in general, in such disarray, that our culture as a whole would also be in disarray. Um, so maybe this weekend, what we can do is go back a little bit to the beginning and draw wisdom and lessons for our family life and for the good of our souls by reflecting on God's original purpose. And again, let's not get lost in the, in the complications of an imperfect family. We, we're all on that, we understand that completely. We all have imperfect families. And some of us may even have very difficult family situations for various reasons. That doesn't mean that the family is a wasteland spiritually. It may mean we have a greater task in front of us. Um, but we should never think that there is no hope for our situation or that there are, no, there are no possibilities for transformation in our situation. There's always that possibility. And I think, again, it comes back to our seeking to be that instrument for um, an abundance of good that can overflow from our life into the lives of others. So I do think we, on this weekend, we can ask God to help us to see that our families, even if they're broken and even if they're a source of suffering, but also and especially when they're a blessing, that they can be instruments for his grace, his healing, his growth and holiness. So some of the things we're gonna look at this weekend 
and we'll go take these as the themes for our subsequent conferences in the, the next couple of days. Learning from the sacred humanity of Christ. What does the Lord in his human nature teach us? That'll be a really long meditation. It'll take about three weeks. But we're going to try to condense it into half an hour. The virtues of simplicity and humility, which mark the life of the Holy Family. There's some profound lessons in those virtues for us. The virtue of cheerfulness. Uh, and to call it a virtue means it's a human virtue. It's not, it's not a theological virtue, supernatural virtue, or cardinal virtue. It's a human virtue. Remember, virtues are habits of the soul. Good habits are called virtues. Bad habits are called vices. The theological virtues are faith, hope, and charity. They're called theological because they're given to us by God. We cannot cultivate them on our own. They're given first to baptism. And then they're renewed in the sacraments. So we all have faith, hope, and charity. Even when we think our faith is weak or our hope, our charity is weak, we should never doubt that God has given us those virtues. They may need to develop and they may need to grow. And we may have a part to play in that development and growth, but it's God who gives them. The cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, temperance, fortitude. Some put them in a different order. Uh, it doesn't really matter the order. Are the virtues that are cardinal, mean they're hinge. That's what the word means. It means a hinge virtue around which all these other human virtues revolve. You know, virtues like patience and, again, cheerfulness and um, humility and, and so many other kinds of virtues. So... That's my machine telling me to stop talking, but I don't pay attention to the technology. I'm not going to let it dominate my life. Um, so the sacred humanity of Christ, what we can learn from that, the virtues of simplicity and humility, the virtue of cheerfulness, which is something we have to choose. It's not just something that kind of a natural ebullience that comes up. They can, but it's also something we have to choose. And then something about ordinary life. Because Jesus led an ordinary life. And we lead ordinary lives. And there's something extraordinary in that ordinariness that we have to discover. And then Sunday, fostering faith, hope, and charity in our own life and the life of our families. Maybe that's something we can do or begin to do or to intensify. And then there's a few words about the Blessed Virgin Mary as the mother of that home at Nazareth will be our final kind of uh, um, meditation upon this topic. So let's ask the Holy Spirit to guide us this evening as we prepare to rest. We pray that he'll give us a, a good night's sleep so that we will have the energy and the strength tomorrow to really enter deeply into this time of retreat, this time of prayer. And so as um, we prepare to uh, go forward, let's do so in silence. So, so that our conversation with God can continue and that can continue unbroken until uh, we leave these, this sacred place of Carmel, this enclosed garden where God wants to cultivate many good and new things in us.